Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Today, we are going to travel back to the 1920s and early 1930s to take a look at the largest and most sustained public demonstration of the Great Depression, the Bonus March of 1932. Today the Bonus March is largely forgotten, but we intend to re-examine it and explore General Douglas MacArthur's role in this controversial event with the aid of a recently obtained oral history from the Harry S. Truman Presidential Library. General MacArthur is commonly vilified in most accounts of the Bonus March, and it is arguable that the Bonus March did more harm to MacArthur's reputation than anything else he ever did in his long and often controversial career. To start, it is important to first consider what was happening in the United States leading up to the Bonus March. Following World War I, many veterans felt that they deserved compensation for the time they had spent overseas fighting for their country when they could have been working and making money had they stayed in the United States. In 1924, Congress overrode President Calvin Coolidge's veto to pass the Adjusted Service Certificate Law. This bill provided for compensation in the amount of about $100 per veteran, but delayed the payment of this bonus until 1945, over 20 years later. The problem with this bill was that nobody anticipated the Great Depression. The onset of the Great Depression would make this delayed compensation an object of further contention because few unemployed, impoverished veterans could imagine surviving through the next 20 years. Around this time, Major General Douglas MacArthur was stationed in the Philippines. In August of 1930, President Herbert Hoover announced that he had appointed MacArthur as the new Chief of Staff of the Army. Returning to the United States, MacArthur was sworn in as Chief of Staff in November of 1930 assuming the rank of general. At the age of 50, he had risen to the summit of his profession. MacArthur was a decorated veteran of World War I. General Pershing had judged him his greatest battlefield commander, and a young George Patton called MacArthur the bravest man he had ever met. MacArthur had been enormously popular with his men. He led from the front and demonstrated a genuine interest in their condition. As a result, Many of those who served under him in World War I idolized him. The bonus march would largely overshadow much of this legacy. As unemployment continued to increase in 1930 and 1931, a growing number of veterans began demanding immediate compensation. In an effort to sympathize with the veterans, Congress overrode another presidential veto, this time from President Hoover, and passed a bill that said veterans who wanted their compensation immediately could be paid half of the bonus amount. Despite this effort from Congress, many veterans remained unsatisfied. While debates over how to handle the veterans' demands were taking place, the War Department successfully opposed several congressional attempts in 1930-1931 to construct a special reserve corps dedicated solely to using jobless men on public projects under the supervision of the Army. The War Department was afraid of mixing the Army with jobless personnel 
because they thought that it would undermine the army's morale and ideological principles, as many of the jobless men were loosely associated with communism or anarchy. MacArthur supported the War Department's decision in this matter. As he did throughout his career, MacArthur was committed to preserving the Army's image and effectiveness. In the case of the bonus march, the intensity of his commitment was most likely due to his position as a fervent anti-communist. As the events leading up to the bonus march were unfolding, fears of communism and revolution permeated the upper levels of government. In hindsight, these fears of a communist insurrection seemed to merely reflect the siege mentality of a government incapable of handling a social and economic crisis. While many fears generated by the Red Scare were unwarranted, to officials looking at Russia and the chaos in Germany, social and economic crises could and did lead to revolution. It is also important to remember that at the time, communists and anarchists were considered the terrorists of their day. These people were feared because their ideologies usually called for the destruction of the American way of life. As such, the Red Scare was a clear and present danger in the minds of many Americans, and events involving communists and anarchists played out with high drama in the press. As these ideologies spread in the United States, so did a very strong anti-communist, anti-anarchist backlash. The trial of Sacco and Vanzetti is an example of this. In 1921, Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were put on trial for murder and theft. Both men were immigrants from southern Europe, a geographic area that many Americans felt would not produce good citizens, and they were also anarchists. They were found guilty and eventually executed in 1927. Their conviction was controversial because many felt that they were not tried for their crime, but for their political beliefs and backgrounds. Essentially, the social and political climate leading up to the bonus march criminalized those with political views that were outside of the mainstream. In spite of this, however, there is also evidence that the Communist Party leaders in the United States did see the Great Depression as an opportunity for revolution. These leaders rallied the jobless and disenfranchised who were desperate and needed something in which they could find hope. Aware of this organizing, and being a fervent anti-communist, MacArthur, like many others, tended to view all outbursts of violence and unrest with red-tinted glasses. As a result, while concerned for his fellow World War I veterans, MacArthur remained steadfastly dedicated to the army and to the security of the state. Continued demonstration marches on Washington began to convince many that the nation's capital was in danger. In December 1931, some 1,500 jobless individuals, many of whom were confirmed communists, conducted a hunger march in Washington. Weeks later, 12,000 unemployed men followed a Pittsburgh priest to Washington to demonstrate and persuade Congress to pass some sort of unemployment legislation. Although neither of these marches generated violence, they provoked a growing sense of nervousness and caution in the Capitol. President Hoover, in particular, reflected Washington's growing siege mentality when he had padlocks placed on the White House gates, reinforced the guard at the presidential mansion, and considerably decreased the number of his political appearances. In late 1931, Wright Patman, a representative of Texas, presented a measure that would authorize the payment of the rest of the bonus to the veterans. However, this would have called for $2.4 billion in flat money, and President Hoover 
strongly disagreed with this idea because he wanted to avoid the inflation that would have been generated by spending non-existent money. Even as the Patman Bill was still being discussed in committee in the spring of 1932, it was a topic of heated debate across the nation, from barbershops to the Senate floor. Anticipating debates and voting in the late spring, many jobless veterans began traveling to the nation's capital in an attempt to lobby lawmakers and raise awareness of their plight. Many of these veterans saw their struggle as part of a national struggle for hope and security, while others just wanted to go to Washington, D.C. to escape the harsh reality of the Great Depression. When the 300 jobless veterans, led by Walter W. Waters, started their journey to Washington, D.C. from Portland, Oregon, other jobless veterans across the nation flocked to join the group. As the movement grew in size and drew closer to Washington, D.C., the stage was set for something extraordinary to happen. The Bonus Expeditionary Forces, or the BEF as they referred to themselves, had begun what would become known as the Bonus March of 1932. Once in Washington, Walter Waters was elected commander of the BEF, whose numbers continued growing daily after reaching the nation's capital. The police superintendent of Washington, D.C., Pelham Glassford, was placed in charge of controlling the BEF because he had effectively dispersed the hunger marchers just a few months prior to this event. Glassford obtained bedding and tents, baseball equipment, and first aid for the veterans. All of these supplies came from the Army. Overall, the War Department wanted to limit the contact between the soldiers and the veterans in order to ensure the loyalty and reliability of the troops if they were needed to act against the bonus marchers. Nevertheless, MacArthur ordered tents, camp equipment, and portable army kitchens to be used for the relief of the bonus army. Although he assisted in these relief efforts, MacArthur still firmly believed that the communists hoped to incite revolutionary action and that they were the driving force behind the marchers. Even as the BEF's weekly newspapers consistently criticized the communist activity, MacArthur began to perceive what was developing as a problem that ran much deeper than a single demonstration march on Washington. On June 8, 1932, MacArthur spoke at the University of Pittsburgh's graduation ceremony. In his speech, MacArthur addressed the issue of communism and his concerns about its growth, asserting that pacifism and its bedfellow communism are all about us. Essentially, for many like MacArthur, communism was becoming endemic with social unrest. He also went on to explain how passive tolerance of communism would eventually lead to America's downfall. After his speech, MacArthur returned to Washington even more convinced that the communists were fully behind the bonus march and the general unrest in the nation. On June 15, 1932, the House of Representatives passed the Patman Bill even though President Hoover had already asserted he would veto it if it passed through the Senate. Unfortunately for the veterans, who had gained a false sense of hope from the bill's passage through the House, the Senate defeated the bill just two days later on June 17th. Following the defeat of the Patman Bill, patience was beginning to run thin for all groups in Washington. By early July, Congress had passed a bill that would provide transportation funds for veterans to go home, and 6,000 of the BEF veterans accepted that offer. By mid-July, the BEF's numbers had dwindled to around 10,000 fervent supporters. Waters, the commander of the bonus marchers, was becoming more dictatorial but could only watch as the movement fragmented and followers ignored his demands. Around this time, the president, the district commissioners, and the war department 
decided that the demonstrators would have to go at some point, even if that meant bloodshed. On July 21st, Police Superintendent Glassford received an order to completely evacuate all of the buildings located along Pennsylvania Avenue occupied by veterans by the end of the following day and from all of their camps before noon on August 4th. Glassford would buy the veterans some time, but at 9 a.m. the morning of July 28, 1932, the police began removing the veterans from the vacant buildings along Pennsylvania Avenue. By 10.40 a.m., the police had completed most of the evacuation without encountering any substantial resistance until a group of communist marchers showed up. The communists were able to raise a slight commotion, but they never posed a serious threat, and no serious injuries resulted from the skirmish. After this incident, Glassford went to the district commissioners to report on the situation. A slight misunderstanding between the two parties notably affected the events that followed. Glassford claimed to have told commissioners that the police were in control of the situation and that no further eviction should be tried that day, and if the commissioners insisted on continuing the evacuation that day, the army might be needed. On their part, the district commissioners understood Glassford to mean that the federal troops were needed to finish the evacuation. Around 1 p.m., the commissioners informed President Hoover that it would be impossible for the police department to maintain law and order except by the free use of firearms, a dangerous situation that could only be averted if federal troops were called in. According to the committee, the mere presence of federal troops would deter troublemakers. While Hoover considered the demand for federal troops, the situation escalated. Just before 2 p.m., a fight broke out between policemen and veterans in which one of the policemen lost his footing, panicked, and shot his gun into a crowd of veterans. Before order was finally restored at the scene, two veterans had already suffered fatal gunshot wounds, and three policemen had been injured in the ensuing brawl. Immediately upon hearing about the incident, the Secretary of War ordered MacArthur to assist the police, surround the area, and clear it out without any delay. By 4 p.m., the federal troops were assembled and prepared to disperse any remaining BEF demonstrators. As Chief of Staff, MacArthur was advised by his aide, Major Dwight D. Eisenhower, to avoid personal involvement in the eviction of the bonus marchers. MacArthur refused and told the future president that he would wear his uniform with ribbons. At the time, the Chief of Staff wore civilian clothes in Washington, D.C. Eisenhower protested, but MacArthur insisted. A recent archival acquisition from the Truman Library has added further perspective to MacArthur's desire to be visible during the action that day. In an oral history by Charles Burton Marshall, pertaining to General Thomas Jefferson Davis, an aide to General MacArthur for 14 years, Marshall recalls Davis's account of MacArthur's actions that day. According to Davis, MacArthur explained to his immediate staff, it was going to be a disagreeable job and a lot could go wrong if there was a serious resistance. Overall, he worried about the potential for discredit and even disgrace on the army and the administration. He explained that he would go personally and wear his uniform and ribbons to make it clear that the burden of the responsibility was on him alone. At 4.30 p.m., General MacArthur and Brigadier General Perry L. Miles led the Federal Army troops in the direction of the area on Pennsylvania Avenue between 3rd Street and 4th Street to execute the first stage of the operation, which was to clear the marchers from the downtown area of Pennsylvania Avenue. 
As the troops marched down the streets, veterans lined the streets, amazed at the sight of so many federal troops. The troops made their way down Pennsylvania Avenue and used tear gas to clear the remaining veterans out of the buildings. The growing animosity towards federal troops was evident, and a group of marchers even attacked General MacArthur's car by throwing bricks at it. Once the first phase of the operation had been completed, the troops were ready to move on to the second phase of the operation, which was focused on clearing the area between the Capitol and the 11th Street Bridge. As the troops neared the 11th Street Bridge, War Secretary Hurley sent multiple messengers to tell MacArthur and Miles not to pursue the marchers across the Anacostia River. MacArthur, however, never received this message. It was later revealed that George Van Horn Mosley, an aide to War Secretary Hurley, had deliberately made sure that MacArthur never received President Hoover's written order to not cross the bridge. Eisenhower also confirmed that MacArthur never received this message. Before the troops crossed the bridge, a man claiming to carry a message from the camp commander asked MacArthur to give them some extra time to evacuate. MacArthur agreed and had the troops stop for dinner, thus allotting the veterans nearly two extra hours to evacuate. Because he had not received any word from MacArthur about what was happening, President Hoover sent a second message to MacArthur that left the decision to cross the bridge at the general's discretion. According to Brigadier General Miles' account, General MacArthur sent back word that it was too late to abandon the operation. The troops were committed, and some had already crossed the bridge. The soldiers stopped at the entrance, and from there, Glassford's police took over the eviction. Contrary to various accounts of the event, the army never killed any of the marchers. In an inquiry after the event, it was discovered that the army hadn't expended any bullets, but they had used over 2,000 tear gas grenades. Hundreds of people suffered the effects of the tear gas, and two people were injured during the last stages of the operation. MacArthur was largely criticized for his role in the bonus march, mainly because of his statements at the press conference following the eviction of the bonus marchers. Eisenhower had advised MacArthur to avoid the press, since the matter was mainly a political matter, but MacArthur ignored him and held a press conference with Secretary of War Hurley at 11 p.m. that evening. With typical MacArthur flair for the dramatic, MacArthur stated, That mob down there was a bad-looking mob, animated by the essence of revolution. He also claimed that, had the President not acted today, he would have been faced with a grave situation which would have caused a real battle. Stressing concerns over the Red Scare, he went on to say that he would be surprised if one in ten of the bonus marchers were actually veterans. This implied that 90% of the marchers were communists, an incredible claim that was poorly received by the public. For many, MacArthur came off as a bully and as somewhat out of touch with reality in the days following. In addition to criticism he received about his remarks at the press conference, MacArthur was widely criticized for the way he was dressed during the operation. According to the testimony of General Thomas Jefferson Davis, MacArthur purposely wore such a flashy uniform because he foresaw the potential repercussions and wanted to take the full blame for what had happened. In this light, it is possible that MacArthur's attire did not show the arrogance or lack of judgment that critics have often associated with this decision. Rather, MacArthur's dress could be considered evidence of his dedication to preserving the image of the army, as well as a willingness to take the blame for the event. That being said, 
MacArthur's ego and flair for the dramatic certainly helped him make this sacrifice. Despite all of the criticism he received after the bonus march, all those who were affiliated with the operation praised MacArthur for how smoothly it was executed. Secretary of War Hurley, Brigadier General Miles, and Police Commissioner Glassford praised MacArthur's actions. President Hoover also supported MacArthur by emphasizing that everything the general had done was within his mandate from the president. Although the damage was already done, MacArthur would be vindicated in other ways as well. Three days after the uprising, the New York Times, in a front-page account, reported, The Communist Party at its headquarters here accepted responsibility yesterday for the demonstration that resulted in the Bonus Army riots in Washington. Even though the Communist Party took responsibility for the demonstration, it was not until 1949 when John T. Pace, the leader of the Communists involved with the Bonus March, testified under oath that MacArthur's suspicions about Communist intrigue were correct. Pace stated, I feel responsible in part for the oft-repeated lie about President Hoover and General MacArthur. I led the Communist section of the Bonus March. I was ordered by my Red Superiors to provoke riots. I was told to use every trick to bring about bloodshed in the hopes that President Hoover would be forced to call out the army. The Communists didn't care how many veterans were killed. I was told Moscow had ordered riots and bloodshed in the hopes that this might set off the revolution. In the end, however, General MacArthur put down a Moscow-directed revolution without bloodshed. If Pace's testimony is accepted, MacArthur's fear and intolerance of communism essentially foiled the communist effort to incite a revolution. The public's perception of the bonus march, as well as deepening fears over the economic crisis, ensured Franklin Delano Roosevelt's victory in the ensuing presidential election. Even though many Democrats encouraged Roosevelt to relieve MacArthur of his duty, he reappointed MacArthur in 1933 as his chief of staff. Roosevelt likely did this to keep MacArthur under his control because he considered MacArthur to be one of the most dangerous men in the country. In return, MacArthur would comment that Roosevelt was a man who would never tell the truth if a lie would suffice. This attitude set the stage for a very intense and very complicated relationship that would play out amidst the Depression and World War II. As Roosevelt's New Dealers took up positions in the new administration, MacArthur would often be a subject of ridicule, often because of his high-profile involvement with the bonus march. He was called a bellicose swashbuckler and a polished popinjay. Ever vigilant and prone to see conspiracy and fifth-column activity in personal, national, and international events, MacArthur would clash frequently with the administration's commitment to pacifism and isolationism. Stepping down as chief of staff in 1935, MacArthur left Washington yet again for duty in the Philippines. The stain on his reputation left by the eviction of the Bonus Army would follow him, however, deserved or undeserved. On January 27, 1936, the bonus finally became a reality for the veterans of World War I. Within a short period of time, though, millions of Americans would again be called upon to serve their country in a time of war. At the end of World War II, however, servicemen would not have to repeat the struggle of the bonus marchers. They would return home to the GI Bill. The GI Bill would provide them with more than just a one-time cash bonus. It would also present veterans with the opportunity and tools to reintegrate back into society in the workplace. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.